Lord, we are amazed at your sovereign hand that is at work behind the scenes in extraordinary ways, and we see that so clearly in this story. We thank you that you're a God who looks after the weak and the oppressed, a God who redeems and restores, and a God who speaks, and we pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Love for another human being at whatever age, even before that human being is born, changes everything. It can revolutionize the value we place even on our own lives, even if it brings with it great personal cost. But that song has further resonance with our subject because Ruth, too, carries a great air of menace. I wonder if you picked that up as it was read. As Ruth goes to glean in the fields around Bethlehem, she is in grave danger. We forget that. And yet in the light of what we've seen in the last couple of days, it's very clear why she was in grave danger. These were anarchic, difficult times. So look in verse 9. Boaz has to say, I've told the men not to touch you. Uh, Then in verse 15, uh, Boaz orders the men, do not embarrass her, do not humiliate her and take advantage of her, don't rebuke her. Why does he have to say that? Well, because she was easy prey. And then verse 22, uh, you find Naomi saying, yes, you've hit the jackpot here. Don't go to anybody else's field because you might be harmed. She is in danger. She's a single woman. Worse, she's a childless widow. She was living below the poverty line, and in some ways she was worse off than slaves because they at least had the protection of a household. Her prospects in ancient society were not great. She has no man to look out for her. And to cap it all, she's foreign. On three counts, she's on the wrong side of the great divides of the ancient world. A woman, practically a slave, and a Gentile. I guess she must have also been facing supreme culture shock as it was. I mean, new place, new language, new ways of doing things. I mean, it's hard enough to move to a different city in your own country, let alone move to a completely new country. And in fact, notice how most of the time from the end of chapter 1, verse 22, she is now known as Ruth the Moabitess. That's her label. Oh, uh, who are you talking about? Oh, yes, the Moabite one. That's her identity. She's a Moabite. Foreign. Enemy. Talk about vulnerable. I'll never forget John. He was one of my former students in Uganda and a dear, dear friend. And uh, he was a Congolese refugee in Uganda having actually gone via Rwanda for a time in Kenya and each time being kicked out. Um, John was a pastor, and that's him on the right there. Uh, And uh, he had the dangerous habit of being prepared to speak truth to power, which constantly got him into trouble. And in the end, he found himself abducted. He was held for a week in an underground cellar, 
uh, and he was persistently tortured and abused during that week. No holds barred at all. Uh, to cut a long story short, um, we were involved in that whole business from, from the beginning of trying to get him out and trying to locate him. Eventually, he was dumped naked in a forest in the early hours of the morning, about three hours north, three hours drive north of Kampala, and he was in a terrible state. And we got him to a hospital in Kampala and uh, um, managed to help him get medical help and so on. But um, the point was that he was a refugee. And that meant that John had absolutely no family ties, no links, little protection in Uganda at all. Which meant that Rachel and I ended up having to protect him and his family for the next 18 months literally moving him, you know, trying to find places for him to live with his family um, and moving him every two or three months because the abductors had threatened to do the same thing again, again to him. Eventually, after all kinds of shenanigans and bureaucracy, and you wouldn't believe all the hassles, eventually UNHCR got him out with the family and got him asylum in Canada. It forcefully brought home to me the vulnerability of the refugee in an alien land. And it's worse for women on their own. Uh, in 2007, there was a briefing paper uh, to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, and World Vision, the Christian uh, agency, included this chilling statement in their, um, uh, their briefing to this commission. This is what it said. The majority of the world's women and girls will experience violence. Whether it's physical, psychological, or sexual violence, it plagues every community and many homes. The majority, that's the word that really sort of pinged out at me. The majority. And it's true. In some cultures, violence against women, if, if hidden behind closed front doors, is deemed quite acceptable and normal. And I can truly remember really bizarre conversations with one or two students in Kampala who tried to give some sort of justification for it, as if this was appropriate. But let's not get all morally superior. It happens here too. And in the six years I've been on the staff of All Souls, I've encountered it more than once within the All Souls church family. Is not acceptable, ever. Interestingly, I've also encountered the other way around with uh, wives beating husbands. That's something that doesn't get into the news very much, but it happens, and I've experienced that at All Souls as well. But the two women in our story, Ruth and Naomi, are not passive. And they do not let the potential, the real dangers of their predicament, prevent them from doing what they can. Well, actually, they had no choice if they wanted to eat. There was no alternative. They just have to grin and bear it. And Ruth, too, is all about getting something to eat. Because if you don't eat, you don't live. Which makes the timing of their arrival all the more auspicious, as we saw at the end yesterday morning, that wonderful... Little phrase in, in the narrator, the writer of Ruth, he's just nailed it again and again. Absolutely nailed it. Verse 22, chapter 1, they arrive just as the barley harvest was beginning. It's not explicit, but um, 
I think in Ruth 2, we can probably guess that the whole of uh, the, the uh, action takes place on one day. I'm going to, for the sake of argument, I'm going to assume it all takes place on one day. And, um, <clears throat> and I think there's a nice symmetry to it. And you can see that on uh, the booklets at the bottom there. As um, the day goes on, you basically have two parallel conversations between Ruth and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And so let's start with the first one, before dawn, anxious for favor. So imagine, it's early days in Bethlehem. Ruth and Naomi have presumably found somewhere to live, but I can't imagine it's particularly luxurious. Uh, And as they see things at the moment, they are completely on their own. All they know is they've got to eat. They've got to get food from somewhere. And that means they've got to work for it. Or rather, Ruth needs to work for it. So look at the verse there. Uh, Verse 2. Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, What is amazing about Ruth, and I guess Naomi had a large part to play in this, but her conversion to to Yahweh and following Yahweh has led her to some serious engagement with God's covenant. She's obviously got to grips with some of the key things that God has revealed in his law, which means that we're going to have to do the same as we study Ruth. And, And several times through Ruth, we're going to have to work out what does the covenant say about these particular little issues and problems. The Pentateuch is essential to understanding the book of Ruth. Just as Judges was, so particularly Deuteronomy and Leviticus will be. And that's all the more surprising, bearing in mind the anarchy and rebelliousness of this period. You know, the whole point about the Judges period is that everybody did as he saw fit because there was no king. Well, yes, there is God, but they don't live with him as king. So they're not taking his word seriously. They're not doing what he says. So everyone, you know, it's chaos. People are doing whatever they like. And it isn't interesting that when we study Ruth, we do have to study what the king has revealed. Because there are some people who take it very seriously. Ruth has clearly appreciated that as somebody at the impoverished margins of covenant society, she still had protection. So just listen to this. I'll, I'll put it up on the, board, on the screen. In Deuteronomy 24, this is what God has said. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. So that the Lord your God, so Yahweh, may bless you in the work of your hands. This is an instruction to the farmer, to the landowner. So, you know, we all make mistakes. We all leave bits behind. Well, when you do, don't go back and get it. Leave it because someone will need it. They'll need it more than you will. And, of course, Ruth applies on various counts. She's an alien and a widow And I suppose as an alien who's left her home behind, she's also effectively fatherless. She certainly doesn't have Elimelech around. She had the right to take the scraps. It's interesting, that little phrase, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, it comes eight times in the book of Deuteronomy. It's worth just doing a little concordance hunt for that. Eight times that phrase. 
And of course, it's one thing, it's one thing for the law to say that this is what should happen. It's quite another thing for people to obey it. I mean, why does God have to say it eight times in Deuteronomy? It's because they're the people people ignore. They're the people who get trampled. The alien, the fatherless, the widow. Still. If you look in the resources booklet on page five... you'll find that um, at various points, um, the prophets, as well as the covenant, the prophets are at their most trenchant when exposing the people's abuse of the poor. And I've just put a whole load of verses there for you maybe to look up in your own time at some point. I'm not going to work through them all now. Is it all gone? Is this in a muddle too? Okay, five, page five, whatever it is, page five. They're just they're just in the wrong way around. Just look for five. That's all you need to do. How can? No, I won't say it. <laughs> okay. Ruth is a realist, though, isn't she? Her attitude itself is very, very poignant there in uh, Ruth 2. She just hopes that she'll go to the field of someone in whose eyes she'll find favor. It's a big question. And in fact, that's the question of chapter 2. Will she find favor? At this point, Ruth and Naomi think they're on their own. They think they're fending for themselves, but there are clear hints that this couldn't be further from the truth. And our problem is most of us know what's going to happen. Well, at least I hope you've read through the story uh, already this week. If you haven't, please do. Uh, We know what's going to happen, so we miss actually some of the nice little details. Did you notice that these little verses, uh, verses 1 to 3, itself form a little sort of sandwich? So verse 1... Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Then verse 3 is its mirror image. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech. So Elimelech forms the sort of sandwich, and Boaz is in the middle, and he's going to be the key. Now, the hearts of the romantics among us now are all a flutter. We all know who he is. It's Colin Firth. but put him to one side. (laughs) I think the writer is more concerned for us to notice that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech than to notice that he is very eligible and good-looking. In fact, we know nothing about what he looks like. We'll see why this matters in a moment. But it's not just that there's a potentially helpful relative waiting in the wings. Did you pick up at the start of verse 3 that lovely little phrase, as it turned out? Oh, well, fancy that. (laughs) As it turned out, it's a lovely way of describing a coincidence, or rather, it's not a coincidence at all, is it? 
It just so happened that of all the fields and farms around Bethlehem, and I guess there were scores of them, whose field did she just happen to find herself working in? Could it possibly be that God, who had been blamed for turning Naomi's life into a misery, was actually up to something? Just as the barley harvest is beginning in the house of bread. Perhaps Ruth wasn't quite as vulnerable as she perhaps felt. Well, we come now to the working day. And um, it's interesting, one of my first cousins is an arable farmer in Gloucestershire, not far from here. And this time of year is a very anxious time for them. In fact, the day before Cornerstone last year, we were staying the night with them on the way here. And uh, we were just chatting about, you know, the sort of stresses for farmers at this time of year. Uh, and, and it's particularly stressful if the weather is very changeable, which in this country, you know, <laughs> it has that habit. Uh, and um, John is constantly having to make calculations about when to send the combines out. Should they do it now, even though it's been raining for the last week? Can they afford to wait, or should they go for it while the crops are still damp? Well, if they harvest while the crops are still damp, then their margins are so slight that they actually have to consider whether or not to harvest wet and lose some money paying for time in the dryers, and they will lose money, um, or to risk leaving it out, hoping that the sun will come out so that the crops dry naturally and uh, they harvest them dry. But if they leave it too long, then they might be completely trashed if it rains too much. I mean, that just gives you a little indication. And basically, some serious storms at this time of year can actually ruin their entire annual income. I mean, I, you know, as he was, he was talking me through and just showing, him, showing me around the, the farm and stuff and just talking me, through with me, I must say, I just thought, man, I couldn't live like this. It's just a few weeks of every, you know, every quarter, everything depends on what happens and it depends on whether it's going to rain or shine. Too much of either and you're wrecked. Get it wrong and you could potentially face financial ruin. It's very stressful to earn your living from the land, and it always has been. But Boaz was a man of standing. He's a farmer, he's a businessman, and like all successful businessmen, he keeps a close eye on his investment. So he comes along early to check how things are going as the harvests are starting. You know, he's out there in the fields just making sure that people are going at it in the right way. Uh, and notice, but, uh, notice as he comes how he greets his workers. Yahweh be with you. And Yahweh bless you. It's not much, but it is God talk nonetheless. Here is a man of God speaking of God in an everyday context. God be with you. It's not just a sort of empty greeting. It certainly isn't in this book. Little things like that mean a lot in the dark days of the judges. Here's a man who does have a king. And I guess they do today. I mean, how often do managers in offices or investors talk like this? May God be with you today. It would change the dynamic in an office rather a lot, wouldn't it? But notice, he's there and he's looking, he recognizes all the chaps. I mean, I guess Bethlehem, you know, everybody knew everybody. The community wasn't big. Um, and he spots someone new. Who's that? Verse 5. Now, again, the romantics' hearts are all a flutter here. Uh, Colin Firth is doing his, and he spots this beautiful girl. Well, 
Is this eyes across a crowded barley field? Or is this the compassion of a law-keeping righteous man who well knows his responsibility for the vulnerable? The law is so clear, and whenever the law talks about the poor, it lays huge emphasis on the rich and powerful and what they should do to protect the weak and the vulnerable. And in fact, as Deuteronomy 26 makes clear, no one can claim to keep the covenant unless he or she looks after the vulnerable. So you can do everything else, but if you fail to look after the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, you cannot claim to have kept the covenant. That's how seriously God takes this. And as we'll see, it's how seriously Boaz takes it. Now, we've no idea what the foreman in verse 6 has on his mind. He clearly emphasizes her ethnicity, doesn't he? Did you notice that? Doesn't even give the foreigner a name. Only the Israelite Naomi is mentioned. Did you notice that? She's the Moabitess who came from Moab with Naomi. Remember that foreign woman? You heard about her. In other words, she's not one of us. Uh, he does at least concede that she's a hard worker. You know, she certainly confounds the right wingers who consider the poor to be just lazy scroungers. But Boaz talks to her, and it is the first of his momentous speeches in the book. As I said yesterday, this is a book of speeches. And what, does, what he does in verses 8 and 9 is to assure her, and this is the point, that he will abide by the law. That's what he's effectively communicating. I'm going to keep the law and give you full gleaning rights, in other words, the right to take over the leftovers, in the fields. More than that, he knows full well in verse 8, do you notice that? That others will not do the same. He knows that there are many others less scrupulous. He says, Don't worry, I'm going to make sure you get your rights. And verse 9, he gives advice on how to keep safe. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get drink from the water jars the men have filled. I give you my permission. Now, Ruth is overwhelmed. You see, this is not sort of grudging covenant obedience on his part, is it? This is the attitude of a man who's generous and kind, a man who shows grace. She bows down with her face to the ground. She explains, why have I found favor? She was anxious for favor. She's found favor. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner, an alien, Now, the answer is obvious. This is not romantic love. This is love that goes far beyond the feelings of affection. This is self-sacrificial love that has to be revealed to be known. It has to be revealed by the God of this love because, you see, Boaz shows this favor because he knows the chesed, covenant love of Yahweh, his God. That wonderful little Hebrew word, chesed, which means covenant faithfulness. Covenant love, everlasting love, which is why it is fitting that a possible, and I stress it's only possible, but a possible translation of Boaz's name is that it is an abbreviation of, in him is my strength. Now, whether or not that is a reasonable translation, it's certainly true of him, and his love for others is a reflection of the God in whom he finds strength. For um, this is a uh, 
Um, oh dear, my thing's gone. It had to happen once, didn't it? <laughs> um, this love is a thread that is weaved throughout God's law in the most amazing way. Just listen to Leviticus. The Leviticus 19. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not ill-treat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. It's a remarkable... I mean, how countercultural is that? Now, when we look at Jesus' family tree in Matthew 1 on the last morning, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come to this, but we're told that Boaz's mother was Rahab. Now, it's highly likely that this is the Rahab of Jericho fame, uh, the prostitute who kept the Israelite spies safe back in the book of Joshua. Now, because Matthew's genealogy does leave out some generations to make it sort of fit into a nice, neat pattern, uh, for the sake of space and neatness, I guess it's likely that he's done this with Boaz because it makes things complicated if, if uh, Rahab really is his mother. It's more likely that Rahab is a grandmother or a great-grandmother, something like that. But either way, what it does show is that Boaz knows he's got alien or Gentile blood. His granny or great-granny was from Jericho, was a Canaanite. Now, that surely must have had some sort of impact on him as he considered what it was like to be an alien living in the land. But, of course, you see, Boaz has another reason to look after Ruth. He's heard about what she's done. In fact, he's heard about her chesed to Naomi. Have a look at verse 11. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your mother and uh, father in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Boaz is the first really to spell out the enormity of what she's done. And so Boaz prays for her to know the true blessing of following Yahweh. Verse, as it goes on, may Yahweh repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Remember that little phrase. We'll come back to it tomorrow. Under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Do you see, a refugee in, in Judah finds refuge in Yahweh. It's beautiful language. It's reminiscent of what God did uh, when he brought Israel out of Egypt. Do you remember? Uh, on eagles' wings. And her risks of faith bring amazing compensation. Uh, do you remember that story in, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 18, uh, with the, the rich young ruler or the rich ruler? And Jesus implies that it's impossible for people to save themselves. And that confuses the disciples because they think, well, yeah, we are saved. So how did that happen? And Jesus says, yeah, but it's with God that these things happen. It's impossible with man. It's possible with God. And they don't really understand that. And Jesus doesn't dispute that they're saved. They simply need to understand that they were saved by God. And then Peter says, we left everything to follow you. Do you remember Jesus' reply? I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Those words could have been said to Ruth, don't you think? She's given up so much as we saw yesterday. 
and she is being greatly compensated, or at least she will. We're jumping the gun a little bit. Let's uh, hold our horses. At this point, Boaz is simply praying for her. Neither Ruth, Naomi, nor Boaz have the slightest clue how things will pan out. But for Ruth now, she's just bowled over. May I continue to find favor? There it is again. In your eyes, my Lord, you've given me comfort and spoken kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing of one of your staff. That's how kingdom relationships should be done, isn't it? How well does all souls fare with the litmus test of the alien, fatherless, and widow? Well, we come to the lunch break. The Mediterranean sun is now at its height. It's beating down. All around the fields of Judah, you can sort of hear the chatter of people downing tools, finding some shade for lunch and a rest. And I guess this must have been the most awkward time, don't you think, for Ruth? Everybody knows everyone. They're all chatting. She doesn't speak the language so well. And this is a time when people ask those awkward questions. While you're all active, while you're getting on with it and gleaning and everything else, you know, people are too busy to work. But when you're sitting down just eating, that's when it's most tricky, don't you think? I guess she probably wanted to keep herself to herself, wouldn't you? Be invisible. Safer that way. People don't easily mix with those who are different from themselves, do they? I I noticed this at the All Souls picnic this summer. We all trooped off to Regent's Park. We arrived as it started raining. There were a few people already there. It was very striking. Under one tree was one family. Under another tree was everybody else. About 40 or 50 people had arrived by that point. And the family on their own were not British. I'm sure it probably just happened like that without anyone intending it. It was just one of those awkward things. The rain had started. You know, people scrambled. You name it. I can just see it. No one was doing it maliciously. I don't blame anyone, but it was very noticeable when we arrived. They were on their own. Everybody else was under another tree. I have to say that I was acutely embarrassed to see it. If it's hard in a church like All Souls, which is so diverse and wonderfully diverse, and praise the Lord for that diversity, may we never lose that. If it's hard in All Souls, how much harder would it have been in an ancient village community where everybody knew everybody and they're all suspicious of outsiders? I mean, you can picture it. It's a caricature, I guess, of a sort of Agatha Christie Miss Marple, you know, in St. Mary Mead. There they all are. And you can just imagine the, the, the um, story, I don't know, brash young American moves into the cottage in an ancient English village, and whenever he goes to the post office, there are sort of sideways glances and murmurings, and people stop talking when he walks into the pub, and you know how we do it in this country. In such situations, it takes a mover and a shaker to make the difference and help the outsider to be accepted. Or certainly someone with courage. Well, Boaz was certainly all of that. He has his picnic with his workers, but he spots Ruth on her own and says, come and join us. Come up to the top table under this bush. (laughs) And here she is in the house of bread being offered bread by the local landowner. That was no small honor. She is given as much as she needs to feel full. 
and to have energy to work. And Boaz didn't need to do that. There was no need for it. And, and when he gives his instructions to the men, we really see his kindness, don't we? Even as she gathers, verse 15, among the sheaves, don't embarrass her, rather pull out some stalks for her from the bundles, leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. I mean, this is more than just leaving behind the things you miss. This is deliberately leaving stuff on the floor for her to pick up. This is going beyond Deuteronomy 24, isn't it? Now, that, of course, was open to abuse. It's perfectly possible to, for the unscrupulous to try to take more than they should. And I guess there were. You know, there are a lot of people who exploit the generosity of others. Being generous is always a risk. Always. Give an inch, they'll take a mile. Many a landowner would be on the lookout for those taking more than their allotment, don't you think? A grudging obedience to the law. Okay, yes, I suppose we've got to let them glean a little bit, take a few leftovers, but that's it, no more. But Boaz is the opposite. He says deliberately put stuff on the floor for her to pick up. And they were under strict instructions not to embarrass or rebuke. This came from the top, and this is stunning and far, far beyond covenant requirements. And so Ruth gets to work, gleaning and then threshing, and she gathers an ephah or a basketful. And in one day, and do you know what? That is massive. I mean, I'm amazed she could carry it. That is the equivalent to half a month's wages. And she gathers it in one day. Not only has Ruth worked incredibly hard, Boaz has been incredibly generous. That's a lot of leftovers, folks. For Ruth and Naomi, the famine could truly be said to have ended. It seems that Boaz's prayer in verse 12 has already been answered by him. This is nothing less than the blessing of Yahweh at work. But then we come to the evening. After dark, Naomi is uh, naturally curious, uh, and Ruth seems completely oblivious. I mean, it's rather charming, really, isn't it? She doesn't really see the significance of what's going on, which is a little surprising, perhaps. But anyway, it's amazing. And I guess she simply sees this as the joy of being wonderfully provided for. I guess she even says, yes, this is Yahweh at work. She's studied the Bible. She knows what God has said. She knows what living in the covenant community should be like. I guess that was one of the things that attracted her, perhaps. I mean, we have such a negative view of the Old Testament law, don't we? And yet, I guess for Ruth, can you see that how what was contained within the law was gospel for her? It was good news for Ruth. God, in his wonder and grace and mercy and love, had provided protections for such as her within the law. That is good news. Grace upon grace. But she asks Ruth, you know, so, so, you know, can you, you can imagine her sitting at home all day, terrified. Anything could have happened. Desperate for Ruth to come home through the front door and, and you know, how did it go? And, you know, the mention of that name, Boaz, just sends her into overdrive. Not quite like the youth have done. But look at verse 20. Yahweh, bless him. He's not stopped 
that is Yahweh, not stop showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He's one of our kinsmen, redeemers. Do you realize who he is? This simple discovery has transformed Naomi. Remember what she was yesterday. Remember, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Yahweh has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Now, a number of people talked to me yesterday. They thought I was being far too hard on Naomi. I think that's to miss the point. One of the reasons I love Naomi is she is utterly honest. Who of you can say you have never felt like this? With the greatest faith and trust in the world, there are dark, dark days. She is utterly real. But you look at this, is Naomi's faith so fickle that she's just affected by her circumstances like this? What's going on? I mean, it's curious. At first sight, her faith appears to be just like the proverbial reed in the wind. One minute when things go pear-shaped, she's down. When they improve, she's up. Is that what she's like? Well, I do think that is unfair. Her faith is not fickle. What has changed is she's understood God better. And very, very often, that's what it boils down to. A dear, dear friend of mine in Sheffield and, and, and the Palmers as well has, is one of those people who has suffered, you name it, just untold both tragedy and terrible health problems. You know, um, she calls herself a sort of a medical joke. She's had everything. The doctors in Sheffield don't know what to do with many of the things. I remember she was on one of our teams in Sheffield, and so she's a dear friend. And, and she would say, uh, constantly come back to me, Mark, and say, Mark, it's about the character of God. That's what it's about. And Naomi has understood more of God's character. She suddenly realized that through the dark days, God didn't stop showing his love. Even when things went wrong, she was wrong to blame him. Elimelech was wrong to go to Moab. We should be in no doubt about that. I understand it completely. That's different. I'm not condemning them for it. I'm not judging them. I'm simply saying uh, I would be the same. But as far as the narrator wants us to understand, they were wrong to leave because God has brought food to the house of bread for those who turn back to him. But she gets it now, Naomi does. She understands. She uses that word again, chesed, his covenant faithful love to those who turn and return to him. By leaving Moab for the promised land, Ruth came to Yahweh, and Naomi returned to Yahweh. I mean, that's the amazing thing. It was a sin to leave, and yet God, in his mercy and sovereignty, turns it right around. If they hadn't gone to Moab, they'd never have met Ruth. Get your head around that. And God's greatest gift to Naomi that made her more full than she could ever imagine was Ruth herself. But that doesn't make it was mean, make it that it was right to go in the first place. God is in control and he can turn every bad thing for good. And of course, the classic example is the cross itself. What was the worst thing humanity ever did? It was to kill God. 
what is the greatest thing that God ever did. Christ died for our sins once for all to bring us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous, at the same time. But here's the key to it. You see, Naomi realizes this chesed, this covenant love, was shown to the living and to the dead. That's not just pious liturgy. That's very significant because what was the source of all Naomi's suffering? Why did everything begin to go wrong? It all went wrong because of the death of three men, Elimelech, Marlon, Kilion. They left her husbandless, childless, hopeless. Or so she thought. Because when they left, God didn't. That's a true friend. It felt like he did. The dark night of the soul is something I'm not unfamiliar with, and you do have this sense that God has gone. But he hasn't. He stayed when the world walked out. He was a true friend, and the covenant protects the vulnerable, the aliens, the fatherless, the widows. Now, since Naomi's future depended on Elimelech's inheritance of land, it mattered what God was doing. It mattered that God was faithful to the dead, you see. It's amazing that God was faithful, don't you think? I mean, after all, Elimelech had left his inheritance and gone to Moab. He said, I don't need that anymore. That's useless land. And Naomi suddenly realizes that the family can somehow get it back. She's realized that Boaz is a close relative, that he's a family guardian or a kinsman redeemer. And we'll think more tomorrow about what that means. But we'll see that it's not going to be straightforward because he's not the only close relative around. There's someone else. But... Boaz has proved his character, his generosity and kindness in a wonderful reflection of the love and chesed of God. Praise be to God. So as we leave it today, Ruth is told to stick close to Boaz's team, for that way she'll stay safe, and she'll hopefully receive more kindness. And as chapter 1 ends with the barley harvest just beginning, chapter 2 closes with the end of the barley and wheat harvests, during which Ruth has been able to glean as much as she could possibly want. And it's a wonderful last half sentence again, isn't it? The chapter ends... The wonderful last half sentence, and it says so much about Ruth, doesn't it? She lived with her mother-in-law. And that's the heart of it. She's stuck at it. This is a chapter full of chesed. The chesed of Ruth to Naomi. The chesed of Boaz to Ruth. The chesed of Yahweh to all of them. And it is on Yahweh that we should depend with praise and wonder. For he revealed his chesed ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. For to use the words of Proverbs 18, Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And because of that, remember what the writer of Hebrews wrote? Keep your lives, in Hebrews 13, from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, Yahweh is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
Those are wonderful and appropriate words in the light of Uncle John's recent homecoming, aren't they? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. And what this friend, sticking closer than a brother does, is to knit us all together. Just as Boaz showed chesed to Ruth, widowed, impoverished, childless, alien, so Jesus shows chesed and forgiving love to us by making us one in him regardless of our background. Which is Galatians 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chesed is never a respecter of status, wealth, looks, education, race, gender, intelligence. Ever. Such is the wonder of the chesed of God, and so it should be ours. Now, before we all head off, I want to play some final things, just as a sort of meditation in a way. We're not going to have group discussions in the same way. I just thought it would be good we just spent time alone with God for the next half an hour or so. So you can stay in here or go to sit under a tree if it's raining or, or somewhere around the place. But just spend this time. I mean, Cornerstone's crazy, isn't it, with so much going on. Just spend time alone with God. But I, this is not an indulgence, but I do want to end with some you too. I've resisted for so long. <laughs> I haven't played you two in church for a very long time. Um, this is a video clip from the, the end of their Chicago gig in 2005. One of the things I love about them is at the end of every concert, they close out with songs that reflect love and dependence on God. Every time. They've been doing it since 1980. And um, it is a sort of musical testament at the end of every concert. For years and years, they ended every concert with a song called 40, which is very simple uh, sort of uh, adaptation of the first verses of Psalm 40 and, and combine it with the theme of Psalm 13. But for a few years, they segued into that song with a, simple, uh, a song simply called Yahweh. And I hope you'll see that the combination of these two is totally apt for someone who has faith in God's chesed, his faithfulness, in the midst of difficult times. This is a trust in God at night that longs in faith for the dawn, crying out, how long, O Lord? Perhaps uh, as you watch, you could have Psalm 40 or Psalm 13 open in front of you. And... Um, just use this as a meditation. <laughs>